0: Well, good morning. So happy to be able to be here with you all together this morning in this season. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to start with to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to continue our series this morning that we have been in for the last couple of weeks here during this season of Advent in which we have talked about the, the truth that God is with us. And so Scott preached about that classic text from the Gospels that this would be the name, and not just the name, the very identity of Jesus, that he would be God with us. And then last week, Justin preached about that God is with us to take away our sin through the sacrifice of Christ. This morning, we want to talk together about how God is with us by his spirit to make us more like Jesus. And so if you'd stand together, let's read from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Now, John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The ax is already at the foot of the tree, therefore every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is greater than I am. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Some of the smallest words in the English language are often the most powerful words in the English language. Think about the word yes, for example. Yes, one syllable, three letters, incredibly powerful. Will you marry me? Yes. Is the baby healthy? Yes. Does it come with bacon? Yes. (laughs) It's a small word, but it's significantly powerful. Of course, it works both ways, though, doesn't it? Because power is not always in the positive sense. Are you sure it's over? Yes. Is it really terminal? Yes. Did you mean what you said? Yes. The power works both ways. The word itself carries with it a great degree of power, regardless of what the question is. And so it is that we come to a word that we've heard around Grace Community Church a lot in the last two weeks. Another small word, but a word that is also incredibly powerful. And the word is with. We've said it again and again and again, God is with us, but it's important for us to note that that word in the midst of its power can actually have different kinds of meanings. Take just by way of example, the place where you are seated right now. So here you are in an enclosed space in Brentwood, Tennessee, and in this enclosed space, you are with a lot of Of people. Now chances are at least some of the people in this room that you are with are people that you don't really know. You might know the side of them, you might know their face, you might even know a little bit about them, but you don't really know them, not really, but you are with them. Well in that sense the use of the word with is really just a description of your physical proximity that you are physically sharing space with another person. But then if you look around again, you'll see that there's another group of people that are in this room. And these are people that you would say that you are with, but you would mean something entirely different with the word with than you would would with the first group of people. Because not only with the second group of people are you sharing physical space with them, that there's another group of people that you do know and that you have walked with and that you are friends with. Now, when you say, I'm with those people, you don't only mean that you are sharing physical space with them. There's a deeper sense of shared experience that comes along with the use of the word when you apply it to that group. And then maybe there's even a third group of people that these are the people that you are closest to, potentially, even physically right now. And you would use the word with to describe those people in yet another way, because not only do you share physical space alongside those people, and not only do you know a little something about those people, but those are the people that you are with in the sense that you have faced some things together. And when you say, I am with that person, what you mean is that I have that person's back, and they have mine, and that come what may, we are going to do this thing, whatever this thing is, we are going to do it together. We are with each other. It's the same word, but it means really, really different things depending largely on the depth of the relationship with the person it is being applied to. Now that's an important thing for us to consider this morning as we talk about God with us by his spirit, because what we are going to see in God's witness with us by his spirit is not only God with us in terms of a physical proximity, And not only with us in terms of a factual knowledge, and not only with us even in terms of being someone who is a defender and a protector, but there is yet another place that we can go in terms of describing the fact that God is with us, and that is that he is with us to actually make us into something different than we are right now. When we turn to Matthew chapter three, we get a little bit of an introduction to the Holy Spirit, and that introduction comes by way of John. We get a sense, even in those first few verses of Matthew chapter three, that it was a bit of a spectacle for people to come and see John. He didn't dress like everybody else, he didn't eat like everybody else, he didn't talk like everybody else, he didn't even preach like everybody else, that everything was unique about John. Unique to the degree that it seems like people were coming for various reasons and some of them were coming just to kind of see the show out by the Jordan River. Now even though people might have thought John was a spectacle, John knew about himself that everything about his life, whether it was his message or whether it was his dress or whether it was his eating habits, that everything in his life was really geared toward one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is to point to Jesus. That John knew and understood about himself that his whole life was about preparing the way and then pointing to the one that was to come. John, in his own mind, was the appetizer. And he knew that there was something bigger and better coming. He points to this. He says, you're coming here to look and to even experience the kind of baptism that I am offering you, but you need to understand that I am baptizing you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I am. In fact, he's so much more powerful, so much greater than I am, that I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. And I'm here baptizing with water, but he is so much more powerful and so much greater than I am that he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so John introduces the Holy Spirit to these people. Now, we need to be careful here to understand that when John talks about the Holy Spirit, he is not talking about some new, different Unbefore encountered manifestation of God. It's important that we understand that because there are even some theological streams out there today in the world who discount the nature of the Trinity. And so what they would say is that look, here is John saying that at some point God is going to become the Holy Spirit. And in that line of thinking, that there was a significant period of time where God was the Father. And then at Bethlehem, God became the Son, and then at Pentecost, God became the Holy Spirit. This is not what we believe as Christians. We believe instead that for all eternity, God has existed in perfect fellowship with himself in three persons so john is not predicting here some new part of god rather he is just giving voice to the spirit who has always been from all eternity and if we go back to the old testament we see the holy spirit there too we see the holy spirit active in genesis chapter one actively involved in creation we see him at various times and places throughout The Old Testament filling specific people to accomplish specific uh, purposes like Saul to prophesy or Samson to tear apart a lion with his bare hands. So what John is talking about here is not some kind of new way to encounter God, not that God is becoming something else, but what he is describing is a day when the Holy Spirit would work in a new way. Because at Pentecost, which we read about in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, there is a marking of a new time in which the Holy Spirit would dwell inside of every single Christian. Every believer who believes in Jesus Christ, when they believe, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence inside of us. It happens when you're born again, and it happens whether you're young or old, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you're from Middle Tennessee or Western Africa. Even Jesus himself in John chapter 16 said that it was for the followers of his benefit that he goes away, because if he goes away, it means the Spirit is going to come. So if you are a Christian in this room this morning, one of the things that is true about you is that the Holy Spirit of God is with you in the sense that he has taken up residence inside of you. And he will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. Every single one of us who names the name of Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. This is what John is referencing in Matthew chapter 3 that a day is coming when there would be a new kind of baptism, and this baptism would be by the Holy Spirit. So in that regard, John's message to these people in Matthew chapter 3 was, you ought to know that this is coming down the line. And because this is coming down the line, what you must do is return to the Lord. And through confession and repenting of their sin, you could be made ready for Jesus who is coming and then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that would come along with Jesus. And John says that your outward sign of your desire to be ready for Jesus to come is baptism. But as Jesus would be greater than John, so also the baptism that Jesus would bring would be greater than the one John offered. John's baptism would be by water. Jesus' baptism would be by fire and the Holy Spirit. And so what I wonder if we could do for the next few minutes is build on that metaphor that John employs when he talks about the Holy Spirit in being fire. And if we expand that metaphor just a little bit, what we can find is a pretty good summary of God's work in us and with us by his Spirit to make us more like Jesus. Specifically, what we can see is that just like a fire does different things, so also do we find the Spirit of God in our hearts, our lives, doing different things. And three of those things that are common to what a fire does and what the Holy Spirit of God does are these, that both a fire and the Holy Spirit purifies, comforts, and shines. So let's take those one by one. A fire purifies. You can cleanse things deeply with heat. You know, water is really about washing and cleansing, but fire is different. In fact, you could say that fire is better in a sense because it goes deeper. Water itself can be cleaned by using fire. It purifies. That's what fire does. And God with us by his spirit is steadily purifying us to the end that we will think, feel, and act like Jesus. Now friends, this is happening in your life right now. That if you're a Christian this morning, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and God, by His Spirit, is steadily moving you toward Christ-likeness. The theological word for this is sanctification. This is happening right now, in fact. You can go so far as to say that if you're a Christian in this room right now, that God's will for your life is that you are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This is God's will for your life. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty comforting to me. And the reason why that's comforting to me is because a lot of times when you ask that question, what is God's will for my life, it is surrounded by a sense of angst because we usually ask that question during moments of big decisions. When we come to a significant crossroad when you have to choose a major, or when you have to choose a city to move to, when you have to choose a career, you have to choose a spouse. These are moments when you look up into the sky and you ask the Lord, what is your will for my life? Now that is a good and right question for a Christian to ask. We should care deeply about what God's will is for your lives, for our lives. But there are generally two problems with us asking that question. The first problem is that most of the time we are not going to experience a watershed moment of clarity in response to that question. You come to this crossroads in your life and you want to know whether you're supposed to live in Memphis or Nashville. And so you look up into the sky and you pray, Lord, what is your will for my life? Chances are you're not going to see a plane going by skyriding Nashville at that very moment. You're not going to see it spelled out in your alphabets the next morning. You're not gonna drop the Bible and have it randomly open up and see a series of letters that you can pick out going vertically that spell out the word Memphis. That's not generally how this works. So that's the first problem with it, is that when we bring these big questions of destination at a crossroads, generally there's not that moment of watershed clarity that happens. And the second problem that we have with that question is that we typically, when we ask that question, are actually looking at the will of God differently than God is looking at the will of God. When we ask the Lord all these questions, at significant crossroads in our lives. Who to marry, where to live, what to study, what job to take, which house to buy. These are all good and valid questions, But in a sense, they're all really questions of destination. They're all about going either right or left. And this house or that one, or this city or that one, or this person or that one. So they're all, in a sense, destination questions. But when you begin to read through the pages of Scripture, what it seems like is that while we are thinking in terms of destination, God is generally thinking more in terms of formation. That the descriptions that we have in the Bible of God's will are not so much about what city you're supposed to live in, or what job you're supposed to take, or even which person you're supposed to marry They're more about the kind of people that God is making us into. When it comes to his will, in fact, it seems that God is generally more interested in who you're becoming than where you are going. And so when we ask the Lord the question, what is your will for my life? We ought to at least entertain the idea that maybe he means something different with that question than we mean when we are asking that question. And that's why this truth is such good news. It's because what is God's will for your life? Well, it's, it's the same thing that God's will is for my life. And it's the same thing it is for all of our lives in here, that if we're Christians. God's will for your life is for you to become more like Jesus, always, and this is in fact precisely why God has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell you, to make you more like Jesus. Now, you may be right now thinking to yourself, okay, I could see how that would be comforting, but I am in fact at a significant crossroads in my life right now, and I am actually asking the question, what is God's will for my life? It would be nice if there was a message in the sky. (laughs) This can still be a very, very comforting truth for you, especially if you're in a moment of confusion. So let's play out that scenario for a minute. Let's say that you are in a season of confusion. That it's not like in your heart you are wondering whether or not there actually is a God. And it's not like you're really questioning whether or not God is in control. And it's not like whether you're wondering whether or not God loves you. You still believe all those things are true, but you look around at your circumstances and you just think to yourself, what in the world is going on right now? Because things seem to be breaking, People seem to be going off the rails. Relationships seem to be going sideways. Stuff at work is not going like I thought that it would. And so it's not like you're wondering whether or not God is in control. But at the same time, you're asking, hey, what, in, what, what is God doing? Right now, I believe he's doing something, but I just can't discern what it is that he's doing. This truth helps you take a breath because just like the answer to what is God's will for your life, The wonderfully simple answer in a moment of confusion, in the moment where you're asking, what is God doing? The one thing, the one thing that you can say absolutely certain is a response to that question is that in a moment of confusion, God is making you more like Jesus. And I may not know anything else that he is doing, anything else that he is trying to accomplish, but I do know that right now, even in confusion, that the Lord is making me more like Jesus. It's a lot of perspective that helps us understand the purifying nature of the Holy Spirit inside of us. So a fire does that too. A fire purifies, but a fire also brings comfort, and so does the Holy Spirit bring comfort. A fire is comforting, isn't it? Almost weirdly so. mean, you walk into someone's home and you're not feeling quite at home, but you look and you see there's a fire, and then it's like, oh, well, I suddenly feel at home now. There's a fire. Or the magnetic quality that a fire has. I mean, you, you put a fire pit in your front yard just Get ready, because people are going to stop They're, for no reason. They're just, oh, there's a fire, and suddenly I'm drawn to this fire. There's, there is a comforting nature to being around the fire. And friends, it is a comforting thing to be formed into the image of Jesus. Now, let's be careful with that, because depending on how you understand the work of the Holy Spirit, his work to make you into the image of Jesus may feel like the furthest thing from comforting to you right now. Just a little illustration to help here. Uh, We have a basketball goal in in our driveway. And for years, maybe even close to decades, I have dominated that basketball court. To be clear, the reason I have dominated is not because I'm very good at basketball, because I'm not. The reason that I've dominated is because I've been several feet taller than the competition that plays on that basketball court. But brothers and sisters, times, they are a-changing. <laughs> I don't have quite the height advantage that I used to have, nor do I have the wind advantage that I used to have, and so it's, games are a lot closer these days when we, when we, when we get outside there. But let's say for the sake of this illustration that I decided, you know what, I wanna go back to the days where I was an unstoppable force on that basketball court. And so my New Year's resolution this year is not just to get better at basketball, my New Year's resolution is to be able to dunk on a 10-foot basketball goal. That's what I'm going to put all of my effort towards. That's what I'm going to put all of my energy towards. I'm going to spend a year doing leg presses and box jumps and squats and practicing so that I can dunk on a 10-foot basketball goal. And if I were to stand here a year from now and report to you on the progress of my New Year's resolution, the results of a resolution like that would be things like, Hamstring pulls and lower back injuries and scraped up elbows from falling down in trying to do this. That is because it doesn't matter how dedicated I am over the course of the next year, I will not dunk a basketball. It doesn't matter how many weights I lift, how many jumps I take, it doesn't matter. I am physically incapable of dunking a basketball. Now friends, if you were right now to take an honest assessment of your own heart and look deeply into your heart, the places that are only visible to you, the thoughts that you only think when it's really, really late at night, and you were to see everything that's in there, and then you were to think to yourself, well, God's will for my life is to make me into the image of Jesus. That could very well be a crushing, crushing reality for you. Because you look deeply into your own heart, and you think to yourself, there is no way that this is going to happen, and to make matters worse. You go back to the basketball illustration, let's say that in my attempt to dunk a basketball, I hired a private coach to come and teach me, and met me every day, every day there in my driveway. How long would it be before that coach was shaking his head in frustration at my lack of progress? How long would it be before that coach was yelling and screaming at me, defeating me, and saying over and over again, why can't you do better? And perhaps that is the voice that is in your mind when you consider the Holy Spirit making you more like Jesus. That it's the Spirit... Who stands over you, shaking his head, crossing his arms, and saying again and again, why can't you do better? What's comforting about that? Well, nothing. (laughs) But if that is the voice in your mind and in your heart when you consider growing into the likeness of Christ, then that is not the voice of the Spirit of God. That's not the voice of the Spirit of God who inspired these words. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, that we are the children of God. To put it another way, the voice of the Holy Spirit is not that of a disappointed and angry coach. It's the voice that reminds you in the midst of your slow and plodding progress, in the midst of your incremental growth, in the midst of all your starts and stops, that you are a dearly loved child of God. The voice of the Spirit of God is not the one who stands over you when you stumble because you will stumble and says, look how far you have to go. The voice of the Holy Spirit is the one who bends low and picks you up and says, look how far you've come. So let's get up and go again by God's grace, look how far you've come, and I will not leave you until we reach the end together because you are a dearly loved child of God. This is the comfort of the fire of the Holy Spirit, that we are never left, never abandoned, never forsaken, and always borne up to the very end. It has always been comfort to me, comforting to me in that regard to remember the words of John Newton, the redeemed slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace, who said, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So the Holy Spirit purifies. The Holy Spirit brings comfort. And the Holy Spirit brings illumination. This is something else that a fire does. It helps you see. It makes things visible. It illuminates. And what we find by the power of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit purifies and the Holy Spirit comforts us along the way in our journey, that the Holy Spirit makes us bright, to those that are around us. Here's how Paul describes in another place, how Paul describes the effect of the work of the Holy Spirit in us from Philippians chapter two. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation and then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Now when we read that, when we read about the illumination of Christians in a darkened culture, what we typically think about is our moral purity that we have a fixed moral compass, that we do not bend on cultural issues in which God has drawn clear standards. And that's right. In a sense, we are illuminated, we are bright in that sense. But our shining and our illumination goes further than that. For example, in the darkness of self-promotion and need for acclaim, Christian self-forgetfulness and service shines. In the darkness of retribution and revenge, Christian forgiveness shines. In the darkness of frenetic busyness, Christian calm shines. In the darkness of insecurity and need for recognition, Christian confidence shines. In the darkness of cynicism, Christian hope and wonder shines. In the darkness of materialism, Christian simplicity and generosity shines. In the darkness of constant offense, Christian long-suffering shines. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit illuminates the life of a Christian. So those three things the Holy Spirit does in our lives, that the Holy Spirit purifies, the Holy Spirit comforts, the Holy Spirit's illuminate, that is the work of the Holy Spirit and that's the work that's happening in your life right now. But that's the work of the Holy Spirit. What is our work? What part do we play in this? And this is a good place for us to end so that we walk out understanding by God's grace the fact that we actually do have a part to play in the work of the Holy Spirit and becoming more like Jesus. Now, it seems to me that there are two errors that we might make in considering our part in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if we can illustrate those two potential errors by describing a couple of different types of boats, because these boats will help us understand the errors. So, one error might be to think of ourselves as a rowboat. Now, if you've ever rowed a boat, you know that it's really, really hard work. And the distance that you travel in a rowboat is directly proportional to your own strength. However long my arms hold out, that's how far I can travel in a rowboat. And some people think about, sanctification like that. If I can work hard enough, if I can do enough, if I can be disciplined enough, it's all about my strength, my ability to grow in Christ, I can go a long ways. And then there's other people who make the opposite error and think about sanctify- sanctification in terms of a speedboat. In a speedboat, you don't have to do very much. You sort of turn it on and throttle down and hold on. This would be the let go and let God method of sanctification where the Holy Spirit's gonna do what the Holy Spirit's gonna do and I'm just sort of along for the ride and he's gonna take me everywhere. Well, it it seems to me that the truth is somewhere between those two. Maybe not in a rowboat and maybe not in a, a, a speedboat, but maybe in a sailboat. Whereas the rowboat Christian is the one who believes that their spiritual life and growth is exclusively about effort and the speedboat Christian is the one who believes that they don't have anything to do at all, the person in the sailboat understands that there is a combination of things. Now, I didn't know a lot about sailing, so I went to Wikipedia. (laughs) Here's a few things that you might not know. The energy that drives a sailboat is harnessed by manipulating the relative movement of wind and water speed, if there is no difference in movement, such as on a calm day or when the wind and water current are moving in the same direction at the same speed, there is no energy to be extracted and the sailboat will not be able to do anything but drift. Where there is a difference in motion, then there is energy to be energy to be extracted at the interface and the sailboat does this by placing the sail or sails in the air and the hole in the water. Interpretation. The forward motion of the sailboat is based exclusively on catching the wind. No wind, no motion, and you can't control the wind. You can, however, control the sail. And the way that you control the sail in our own lives is through the little things that we do every day. You read the Bible, and you pray, and you meet with the people of God, and you confess your sin, and you give, and you live a disciplined life, and you repent, and you do all these things over and over and over again. And every time you do one of those things, what you are doing is raising the sail. You can't make you more like Jesus, no matter how much Bible you read. But you can raise the sail of your life in faith that the Holy Spirit will catch it and prepare you forward, and do what only he can do. Would you pray with me together to that end this morning, that the Spirit would do the work that only he can? Father, we believe that that is true.